week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. This week in cycling history in 1996, Johan Museo announced that he will continue as a professional cyclist for at least one more year. Shortly after the 1996 Paris Tour race, where Museo had finished in 20th place, he had announced that he was going to retire at the end of the season at the unusually young age of 31. The Belgian had already had a stellar career, having won Paris-Roubaix, Paris-Tour, Amstel Gold and the Tour of Flanders twice, as well as three stages of the Tour de France. He had also been Belgian road race champion twice. At the time of his retirement announcement in 96, Museo was the reigning Belgian champion and was the leader and likely winner of the World Cup series with only the Tour of Lombardy to go. But the upcoming World Road Race Championships in Lugano in Switzerland changed everything for Museo. He was the leader of the Belgian team which included strong riders such as Wilfried Peters, Axel Merckx and Peter van Pettigem. Museo had ridden the final 30 kilometres with Mauro Gianetti after the pair broke clear of a large group. Museo had too much in the sprint and he became the first and only rider to have ever won the rainbow jersey on his birthday. He said afterward, This is the greatest victory of my career. I've won a lot of big races, but this is special. This is something that stays with you for a whole year. I wasn't the strongest rider out there today. Mauro was, but I was the smarter. In cycling, it's important to use your head. I understand how he must have felt riding in Switzerland. He must have been very nervous, but he knew that I'm very strong in the sprint and that he is better in the hills. Museo then went on to do a U-turn on his previous decision to retire at the end of the season, saying, I did say that I was quitting at the Paris Tour race, but it was my family who persuaded me to continue. They told me I could do it and not to give up. I trained really hard this week and they were with me, and today I'm the world champion. But let's leave the past in the past. I don't know when I'll stop, but I'll race next season, that's for sure. Museo went on to successfully compete until 2004, making somewhat of a mockery of his premature decision to retire eight years previously. He went on to win one more Tour of Flanders and two more Paris-Roubaix, as well as a hatful of semi-classics. His career is mostly coloured by his relationship with Paris-Roubaix, where, starting in 1996, every second year he seemed to experience a career-defining moment. In 1996, he won the race for the first time. In 1998, he smashed his knee off a pole, shattering his kneecap, which kept him off the bike for almost a year. In 2000, he won the race again, famously pointing to his fully recovered knee as he crossed the finish line in the Roubaix Velodrome. In 2002, he won the race for the third time, joining the likes of Eddie Merckx, Francesco Moser and Rick Van Looy on three wins. And finally, in 2004, he rode the race for the final time, aged 38. He was in the leading group of five with just six kilometres to go before an untimely puncture ruined his chances of equaling Roger de Vlaminck's record of four victories. So, Johan Museo, I mean, he's, um, he was a predecessor of Alejandro Valverde in the, the, you know, the silly poodle hair front. Um, and it seemed, he seems to be a big part for me of that entire generation of uh, slightly suspect cyclists, but still... Still a great Belgian, you know, the, the Lion of Flanders and much loved to the uh, the Belgian people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I said in the piece, I mean, he was certainly defined by by those races and Paris-Roubaix in particular. And, and uh, he he um, like he, he actually holds the record for, for podium places in those two races, actually. He, he's finished on the podium between those two races 14 times, which was pr- pretty unbelievable, to eight times in the Tour of Flanders and six times in Paris-Roubaix. And yeah. uh, n- nobody else even comes close. I'm not sure how many marks got. I think it was only nine or something. But uh, I mean, and and again, like I said, uh, he he went through this progressional relationship with Parry Roubaix, and uh, it, it, I, I just before we came on here, I watched the footage of the uh, the 2004 race, the last time he raced it, and mm-hmm. um, it, it's just it's so indicative of how 
unforgiving that race is. You know, he was in the breakaway with just a few kilometers to go. He, he, and the guys that made up the rest of the breakaway, I mean, he had with him, he had um, a very young Fabian Cancellara, uh, Backstead, who won it in the end, uh, Roger Hammond, and uh, I, I was about to say Dirk Hoffman there, but it's not Dirk Hoffman, he's the motorhome guy. It's uh, Tristan guy. Hoffman he had with him. And, um, you know, I mean, he was old at that stage, he was 38, but you'd still fancy him to win that sprint. And, uh, I, remember, and I remember it well. I mean, I remember thinking that he actually had it because he, although he was old, you know, he was thirty-eight. Rubé's a race, um, you know, where people like Gilbert Ducolassal, as you know, as they're approaching their old age pension, you know, they've got the experience and they've still got the kind of power it needs to ride over the pavé. And I had money on him in two thousand and four before before he punctured. Yeah, and and like I, I, I know I always talk about um, you know the, the ability and how impressive it is to 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 repeatedly win races. But I think I think Paris Rou- to to repeatedly win Paris Roubaix is 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 probably more impressive than the most because. Uh, it's just this race that it's it's because it's like a last man standing uh an exercise in in who is is capable of just falling over last and because you just get crashes all day and i i know there's a quote that's i can't remember who said it but to win paris rube you don't necessarily need good luck you just need to not have bad luck and for Museo to be consistently up there in in finishing these podiums and, and winning winning Paris Roubaix, I know I know like as with many riders from this generation, you know there's the the, the undertones of doping, and he he only he you know he, he he got caught towards the end of his career, and I think he only admitted doing it in the final year of his career to to finish on a high or whatever. But you know I'm not sure how true that is, but but I mean notwithstanding the fact that uh, you know. <laughs> He, he didn't fall over in these races. I mean, there's no amount of dope is, is going to not make you crash on the cobbles. And um, it, it was it was interesting as well that uh, in uh, his his very final race, he rode Perry roubaix in 2004, and uh, he went on to ride the uh, the Shelda Prize Flandron in the, in that year. And uh, Tom Tom Bonin actually won that race in Museo's final final professional race and uh, mm-hmm. it was a real kind of passing of the torch and even in 2002 when Museo was busy winning it uh, Bonin came third he finished on the podium and that was back when he was in his when he was really young in his US postal days and uh, I, I think he might have only been 21 and uh, but that, that was a real kind of you know over to you mate and uh, you know obviously Tom Bonin has, has actually surpassed Museo's achievements in these races which you know, if you'd have said that at the time, people wouldn't have believed you. But you know, Boone has 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 been incredible. But uh, the, the 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 fact that he announced his retirement at such a young age is kind of it's it's kind of alarming. You'd wonder, you know, he was only he was only I can't remember what I said in the piece. Was he only thirty one? And uh, yeah, thirty one. Yeah, like I mean, it, it's kind of crazy when when you th- think to what he achieved after he had announced that he was going to retire. And uh, it's just got me thinking about all these cyclists that actually do retire early and you kind of forget how young they were um, you know like Eddie Merckx was I think he was only 33 and mm-hmm. Indurain was only 32 and Bernard Eno was only 31 and like mm-hmm. you know a, a guy like Eno you, you kind of think he, he actually probably could have ridden for another 10 years and, and yeah. he, he would have been winning and uh, it, it, it's like it, it, I think we have a strange relationship with heroes when we when we create these heroes in sport you, you know we, we, we really appreciate them and we love them well, you know, many people love them when they're at the top. But I think, like, 
it, it, it's like we don't feel there's closure with our heroes unless they fall, you know, unless they unless they they are beaten, ultimately beaten. And and this was this was true of uh, Eddie Merckx, you know, he he rode the tour, he, you know, he obviously won the tour five times, but then he, I mean, he kept riding it up until 1977, and he finished mm-hmm. a kind of a nondescript sixth place that year. And uh, Indrain did the same, you know, he he cracked on the climb to Les Arc in '96, and I think he he didn't even finish in the top ten. And uh, you know, I, I'm sure there was plenty of people that took great satisfaction out of the fact that Armstrong, all doping aside, came back in 2009 and and didn't win. You know, he was beaten. You know, he mm-hmm. he 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 left at the top, but he just couldn't resist, and he came back, and ultimately he did fall. And uh, it, it's just, um, I, I I suppose I've kind of gone off on a tangent here, but I suppose it's just that uh, it, I think it makes what Bernardino did even more impressive. Because yeah, he, he was I mean, he was able to step away. I know he didn't win his final tour, but he it's like as if he could if he wanted to, and he just he he left the sport, you know, with his with his chin up and his and you know uh, he he was done, and it's it, it just a, kind of an amazing thing to to do. I think he's he's he actually did he not announce the, the date he was leaving pretty much as soon as he started his professional career. <laughs> I mean, he, he decided well in advance when he when he was going to retire, and as you say, you know, there was none. None of that thing where, you know, Museo came back after his world championship and his family had encouraged him and he thought, he can, you know, he can't turn his back on the peloton as world champion and then went on to, to race, you know, really well until 2004. But, you know, when he walked away, just walked away. You know, I can, I can seriously imagine him going to his farm in Brittany, putting his bike in the shed and then not looking at it for years. And I think that's actually what he did, isn't it? Or reportedly, I think yeah. that's actually what he did. But uh, going back to Museo, um, another thing that struck me when looking down through his Palmares in preparation for this, he he, he didn't really focus on the Grand Tours. You, you know, um, you know, classics riders these days like Boonen and Cancellara and all these guys. You know, obviously they give their full attention when when it's April and the, you know the classics are the number one goal. But you know, they they do try to win Grand Tour stages and they they ride and you know one maybe two Grand Tours in the year mm-hmm. as, as well. But uh, Museo, in his in the early part of his career, you know, he did he did ride the Tour de France quite often, and uh, he he actually made up part of Greg LeMond's uh, ADR team in 1989, which probably some people might know. But he he had forgotten that yeah, actually. Yeah, he was part of that team. I, actually, it's a really weird team that ADR team. You know, he it, it it's kind of gone down in history that LeMond didn't really have a team to support him in that tour. But it's not that they weren't good riders; they were bloody good riders. They just weren't really Tour de France riders. I mean, I think Frank Host was in there, Eddie Plankart, uh, and another, like, they were just classics riders. They just didn't really suit what, what the goal was. But but anyway, Museo made made part of that team. And, uh, you know, he rode the Tour a couple of times, but as as he kind of got older and more mature, he, he stopped riding it. You know, he just didn't, wasn't bothered anymore. And uh, he, he I think he he, he might have rode the Tour of Spain a couple of times, but not really. And it, it kind of just, um, that type of rider maybe who, who ignores Grand Tours, maybe is kind of lost since the World Cup series stopped and it just kind of ho- highlights maybe how how kind of stupid the pro tour is or the world tour or whatever it's called now it's just it doesn't work I mean yeah you know who who won it this year I, I mean I, I, I know but I'd, I, I'd say many people don't and you know they, they don't care why would they you, you know I think I remember reading somewhere that uh it was actually quite close in the end between Bradley Wiggins and Joaquin Rodriguez and mm-hmm. actually the only race that those two rode against each other this year for the whole year was the World Championships road race. 
And that it's, just goes to show how ridiculous it is. It's yeah, just, I mean, it's funny, because I, rem- I remember being really excited with, uh, you know, your countryman and close personal friend, Sean Kelly, <laughs> when, uh, you know, he was winning the Perno Super Prestige, and he actually followed that throughout the year. And it was a real ding-dong battle between him and, you know, him and Greg LeMond, I think, one year, for example. And it added interest. It wasn't just the Grand Tours, and it wasn't just the Classics individually. It was, you know, it was something that cycling fans followed throughout the year. And that's stripped away now. You know, there isn't that sense of drama that builds throughout the Classics anymore. No, and it's a pity. I, I mean, I can't see it making a return. I, I don't know why. I don't know why they got rid of it in the first place. I must maybe I'll do a piece on that next week. But uh, yeah, it's 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 real. It's it's tragic, really. But it, just one more thing before we leave that, I must say that I said in the piece that Johan uh, Museo was the only guy to win the rainbow jersey on his birthday, and actually, that's that's not actually true because uh, he's the only guy to win the men's road race on his birthday. But uh, an Irish guy called Mark Scanlon won the junior road race in 1998 on his 18th birthday. So I must say that. Is he not a windsurfer or something now? He was, yeah, yeah, I th- yeah, I think so. He's living in Sligo. I, I think last I, last I, I read, he's um, kind of he runs like a nutrition company and yeah, does a lot of surfing in his spare time. It's a real shame that he he left the sport. And actually, I mean, it, I, I maybe I'll do a piece on him as well because uh, his is a real sad tale where you know he stepped away from the sport because of of doping directly because of it, and mm-hmm. uh, you know he he had massive potential. I mean, I I I, I mean, what age is he now? He's He's still only like thirty three or thirty four. I mean, he still could be riding now. Oh, he could still be riding, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's a, he, I mean, the, the, those are the guys that don't get written about. You know, all these guys that are coming out and oh, you're, you know, they're very courageous for admitting to doping and that. You know, come on, that's not courageous. You know, the, 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 these guys that doped took away careers of, of, you know, countless careers that we'll never know about now. You know, as yeah. a result of what they did. So yeah, an an, an un, unfulfilled promise through no fault of his own here's a quick question for you um the only person who who in my head i mean there's a few people that i associate with paris Ruby, but museo is clearly museo and boonan are, are the preeminent in my my head and the, the kind of modern era but for me the one before that was again your man sean kelly and I'm in, I'm interested because Kelly, you know, he, he positioned well in the Grand Tours, you know, won the Tour of Spain, high placings in the Tour de France. So it wasn't that he couldn't climb. So why did Museo win the Tour of Flanders so many times and Kelly? Hmm. <laughs> um, I will. I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. That you know, Kelly came close a number of times and. Uh, I can't remember what year it was. Was it 1984? I think he was in a break and uh, he he was just incredibly confident and he made a balls of it and he 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 started the sprint from miles out and thought he could beat everybody and in the end he was nipped on the line yeah. and uh, another couple of years he had really unfortunate crashes and I I, I don't think there's, there's a there's a simple physiological reason to to why he didn't win the Tour of Flanders. I think it was just I, a, I still can't believe that. I mean, think when you look back at Kelly's Palmares and the race, races that he won. That's one of the the most kind of screaming emissions in, in a rider's palmares that you can imagine, given his you know his obvious talents in that kind of terrain. Yeah, yeah, that and the world championships. Well, that was uh, Scott's close personal friend Stephen Roach, who was uh, the winner of uh, the winner <laughs> of the world championships for Ireland, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, anyway, we'll move on uh, to essentially a decision made after one of the uh, defining moments in my uh, my eighties. Watching Greg Lamond overhaul Laurent Fignon on the uh, on the Champs Elysees, and here's a piece about decisions for time trials or not. 
1989, the Tour de France route was announced and there was to be no final stage time trial along the Champs-Élysées. As we now know, the climax to the 1989 Tour de France was the most dramatic in Tour history. After a three-week ding-dong battle, Laurent Fignon led Greg LeMond by 50 seconds, with just a 24.5km time trial to tackle on the final stage in Paris. LeMond, equipped with his aero bars and aero helmet, beat Fignon on the stage by 58 seconds, to win the Tour by 8. The decision to stage a time trial on the final day had been a masterstroke but one which the tour organisers were not willing to risk a second time, as the 1990 route would revert to the processional road stage on the final day. Tour organiser Jean-Marie Leblanc said at the time, It was a stroke of genius that we had a last stage time trial this year, with the incredible suspense it produced, but there was very little chance of history repeating itself, and we don't dare expect it, so we are going back to the traditional and popular finish. But history had repeated itself already, as this was not the first time that the Tour de France had been won in Paris in a final day time trial. Between 1964 and 1971, the final stage of the Tour each year was a time trial which finished in Paris. In seven of those eight years, the final time trial merely sealed the victory of the rider already in the yellow jersey. But in 1968, the test against the clock proved decisive. The 1968 Tour was dubbed the Clean Tour after Tom Simpson had died during the race the previous year. As such, the route had significantly fewer climbs than usual. Consequently, with one stage to go, it was the Belgian classic specialist Herman van Springle who held the yellow jersey going into the final time trial. Van Springle held a slim 12-second gap over the Spaniard, Gregorio San Miguel, and he had a 16-second advantage over another classic specialist, Jan Janssen. The final time trial was run over 52 kilometers from Melon to Paris. Janssen put over three minutes into San Miguel, but more importantly, he beat Van Springle by 54 seconds to win the Tour by 38, which at the time was the closest Tour win ever. Janssen was also the first ever Dutch winner of the Tour de France. From 1972 on, the final stage became a road stage, and it has been a road stage ever since, with 1989 being the only exception. So this year, the uh, the organisers and Christian Prudhomme and his team have decided that instead of doing a, a time trial on the Shones of Lise, they're going to mix it up a bit again with um, a nighttime finish, which I think will be cracking. Yeah, I, I actually I wrote this piece um, before the this year's tour route was announced. Um, I, I I wrote it for last week, but I couldn't do it last week because I had the man flu. Which mm. uh, you're, st- I, you're I, still sounding a bit fragile, son. Yeah, well, which as you know, you know, I was literally on the brink of death, and uh, you know, I, I got together <laughs> to, to to come back in time to do this. So, um, I, I uh, so I had written this before the, the route got announced, and I, I have written in the notes that there was actually rumours that um, the tour itself might finish on top of Abduez, which kind of in hindsight is a bit mental you know it's a kind of a (laughs) it's a cul-de-sac on the top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere and uh you know what are you going to do with thousands of people um to to stage a tour route it seems completely not feasible now but uh yeah the nighttime thing is interesting um it'll be spectacular um i i think (laughs) there there will it it will bring its own problems i I know shane stokes pointed out on twitter that it's going to be an absolute nightmare for uh deadlines for journalists if the tour is only finishing at half nine and uh, they're trying to write their stories for the next day's papers, it's not really going to be conducive to that. But uh, Oh, Shane, grow up here, man. You're a journalist. <laughs> Stay up late one night. <laughs> but uh, no, for fans, it'll be it'll be really great, I think. Uh, I know the Tour of Spain did a nighttime to- team time trial to kick kick it off a couple of years ago, didn't they? And, yeah, uh, they did. I know the Tour of Oman, or Tour of Oman, Tour of Qatar, I don't know, one of those tours have, have done a, a nighttime team time trial as well so uh, I mean it, it's not completely unprecedented but I, I think it is for the tour 
but uh, I was I, I was going to ask you about uh, your experience with the the 1989 time trial because I heard a funny story recently. I was out with a guy and he was uh, he was telling me he's a big cycling fan and he was telling me um, that of the day that he uh, of this time trial he had to leave the house for some reason and uh, whatever station it was on he taped it and uh, he warned his wife not to tell him what happened and he got back and his wife said right I'm not going to tell you what happened but all I will say is it's a big surprise. <laughs> And she wasn't even joking. She just she thought that was that was an okay thing to say, and obviously he wasn't happy with her. I like. I mean, I remember watching it on the telly with the uh, the new slightly sad figure of Phil Liggett at the height of his powers. Yeah. And um, it was just it was one of the most captivating, you know, half hours of riding I've ever seen in my life. Because you had Fino, who was you know on what the year before had been a state of the art time trial bike. You know, uh, with his ponytail flowing in the wind, and subsequently, you know, we discovered he had saddle sores and all sorts of problems. And you had Le Monde with his tri bars and an aero helmet that I think subsequent tests have shown actually slowed him down. It was so badly designed. Yeah. But it was literally the scenes of Fignon collapsing on the cobbles, you know, and of Cathy Le Monde squealing and Greg Le Monde suddenly realising he's won. Um, they defined just just like Bernardino with his panda eyes, you know, after he broke his nose. Yeah, those are the images that stick with me of the tour in the eighties, and it's when I got really, really passionate about watching the professional sport because suddenly we could, you know, before then all you'd been able to do was see it in the newspaper, and I still don't think I've seen a better Tour de France finish than that. It was a wonderful, wonderful day to watch. Yeah, it's kind of a um, like I mentioned in the piece that there was a, a, a closing time trial from nineteen sixty four to nineteen seventy one. And uh, it's kind of a pity that it's only happened once since, like, uh, you know, you wouldn't have had live TV pictures in 1968 when, when Jan Janssen won that race. I mean, you obviously do now. And, uh, you, you know, I, I just wonder when, um, you know, the last three years that they ran the time trial on the final day, 69, 70 and 71, you know, Merckx was absolutely dominant. And he was, you know, there was no drama. He was clearly going to win. It was actually, you know, it was a procession of a time trial. And... Uh, you know, I just wonder whether Merck's kind of ru- ruined it a-, a little bit, and that they said, you know, sod this, you know, <laughs> this isn't working. Let's let's scrap the final time trial. But because you know, I mean, if they were to reintroduce it, I know they didn't this year. Uh, you know, maybe maybe they will. I don't know. But you know, the the final time trial of the Tour de France in recent years has actually been quite quite exciting. You know, I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in 2011, there was Andy Schleck against Cadell Evans. Like, I know Evans kind of, you, you know, he won it quite convincingly in the end. But there was a there was a time for the first maybe 20 minutes, half an hour of the time trial where it was like, hang on, you know, Andy Schleck could, could, could do something here. And, it was, mm-hmm. you know, there was a bit of drama. And the year before, it was the same. Contador had the lead. And Andy Schleck, you know, he, 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 he looked like he might do something for for the first half of it. And in 2008... We had Carlos Sastre against Cadell Evans, where we all kind of expected Cadell Evans to to win it, to overhaul Sastre, who was not renowned as a time trialist, and uh, you know that didn't play out. So I mean, we have had time trials that matter on the on you know not on the last day, but the the penultimate day. So I mean, you know, Jean Marie LeBlanc said at the time that you know they wouldn't dare risk the 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 chance of a of a tour coming down to the final time trial again. Mm-hmm. But it does a lot of the time, you know. It does come down to to the final time trial. I think the trick is to design the course so you know so that it's easy. I think this this course that we've got coming up this year, um, 
we're going to see the time trials be decisive, but not to the point where they kill the race like they did, you know, in 2012. Um, so I, I just like a balanced race. And this thing in 1989, part of the thing was you thought Le Monde might have a chance, you know, because he'd been, he'd been awesome in the last week, as had Fino. And Le Monde was, you know, arguably the better time trialist. But it was just far enough away that you thought, ah, it's just too long. So when he sprung it by the, you know, the legendary eight seconds, it was it was genuinely, as you, as your mate's wife said, you know, a bit of a surprise. <laughs> oh, poor guy! I, I tell you, the thing that surprised me actually was uh, talking about Jan Janssen, who was um, one of those kind of uber cool guys in the bike with the sunglasses and everything. You know, he looked like uh, like Merckx. He would put on a leisure suit, and, you know, and get in a wee private plane. Yeah. But that tour that that he won. Um, it must have been awesomely easy. I mean, I've watched some footage of it because I don't mean easy. No tour's easy, but you know, compared to the hilly monsters that came before and after, because he'd been world road race champion, he'd won the points classification in the Tour de France a couple of times. Um, you know, I'd, he was a decent all round climber because he also won the Vuelta. But for somebody who was essentially world road race champion and points classification guy, then to come and take the overall yellow. Uh, it was that was a bit of a surprise as well. Yeah, I mean it's it's I don't know who to compare it to. It's maybe like Oscar Frere winning the Tour de France or something. You know, it, yeah, no, that's a good example because I was going to say Cavendish, but he wasn't quite that pure. But it is a, it, Oscar Frere would be a good one. It is kind of like Oscar Frere suddenly popping up and uh, and taking the yellow. Yeah. So um, it, it must have been a quite a radically different tour after you know after the death of Tom Simpson. Yeah, I, I I actually I didn't look too hard into what the actual tour it was. I must have a look and see what calls they actually climbed that year. I know they did call it the. The, the clean tour and uh, you know no, another like, one yeah <laughs> like 99 was whatever the tour of renewal and all this and Jesus God knows what next what next year's tour will be called but uh, I mean they, they did seem to to really really um, reduce the the effort required to to get through the race and, and to win it and um, you know uh, and Herman Van Springle as well he finished third and he, he's kind of another rider in that mould um you know, a, a classics guy that you would never really expect to be challenging for the Tour de France. I'd say, uh, I'd say Sean Kelly is pretty upset that they didn't concoct a route like that when he was around. Oh, Kelly would have walked that. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Now, after your um, long rant about Johan Museo at the start, I'm going to hurry things along a bit to try and keep us down to our normal time. Because, right. um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all about the discipline, me. <laughs> um, and what we'll do now is we'll have a chat about a hill uh, above Barcelona. In 2007, the Escalada a Manjui race took place for the last time. Manjui is a hill located above Barcelona. The top of the hill has hosted a fortress since the 17th century, which was later used as a prison and is now a popular tourist attraction. Up until 2007, the Manjui hill played host to one of the more unusual races on the calendar. It was raced on a single day, but it consisted of two stages. The morning stage was a 25km criterion made up of five laps around the hill. The afternoon stage then was an individual time trial, which ended with a climb up the Manjui Hill. Unsurprisingly, Escalada a Manjui literally translated means the climb to Manjui. The first edition was held in 1965 and was won by legendary Spanish climber Federico Bahamantes. The list of winners thereafter is a who's who of cycling legends. Raymond Poulidor won it three times. It was also won by Bernard Thévenet, Joop Zoutemelk, Claude Criquillion, Alex Zula, Tony Raminger and Laurent Jalabert. The record number of wins is six, which is held, unsurprisingly, by Eddie Merckx. 
It was also the scene of Joaquim Rodriguez's first ever professional win. He would go on to finish on the podium a further four times. The final edition in 2007 was won by Danny Moreno, who was then riding for the Relax Gam team. He won both the Criterium and the time trial. The race used to be the last race of the Spanish season, but in 2008 it was cancelled, presumably due to financial reasons, and unfortunately has not been organised since. I used to quite enjoy that race. Because uh, did, did you like my pronunciation there, John? Because I know you've given me uh, you've given me grief over my pronunciations of pedalera, pedalera before. So I pulled out all the stops there and uh, you know got my Spanish hat on and gave it a welly there. I tell you, actually, we had um, we had a holiday just on the, the very end of the Pyrenees, on the you know on the kind of Mediterranean end of the Pyrenees once. I'd spent the entire holiday flitting back and forth between Basque France and, you know, Catalan, Spain. Yeah. And I have no idea how anybody pronounces anything in there. All I'm going to say is, you know, you better take an umbrella if you're going on holiday there because there's an awful lot of kind of guttural spitty noises. <laughs> so God knows how you pronounce it. I'll go with whatever you want, mate. Well, I mean, as an English speaker, you just, you, you want, I mean, it's spelt M-O-N-T-J-U-I-C. So you're inclined to say Monjuice. I am anyway. And mm. uh, I don't know. I, I only pronounce it that way because you gave me a hard time about pedalare, pedalare. But uh, I, I kind of, I don't really care about pronunciations. I like, I, I'm kind of of the opinion that, uh, you know, I'm speaking English. I'm not speaking Spanish. So this is the way we pronounce it when we're speaking English. You know, people, people in France don't say Dublin. You know, they say Dublin. Because they're speaking it's, French, and you know that's fine. Whereas uh, I, one thing I, I, I uh, pointed out to you on Twitter, I, I had a little jab at you. Was how, how would you pronounce the, uh, the 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 team that Sean Kelly is in charge of? See, I'm scared now. I'd <laughs> go for I'd, I'd go for Anne Post. Uh, it's not that far off. It's well, I know I know uh, commentators on the telly kind of say An Anne Post, but it's, it's actually pronounced on Post. Ah, see, I, I was too hard on the first hour. Yeah. But we, anyway, moving on. Right, moving on. Sorry, <laughs> we still see. I mean, we still see this hill used in climbing. It, you know, it appears in the, the classic San Sebastian. Um, and for me, it's actually it's one of those crossover points between two of my interests, because it also used to be the uh, location of the Spanish Grand Prix. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, and they stopped using it in, oh God, it must have been the early 70s when somebody crashed, went off into the spectators and killed loads of people. So, but, you know, it's a big flat thing and you think, ah, can it be that hard to climb? But it was good enough to deserve its own race for ages and it's often a decisive hill in other races. So, uh, you know, if you're getting to Barcelona, get your bike and have a ride up it. Yeah, I just I, I put it in because it's kind of an interesting race. You know, the fact that it's two stages in one day and... It, you don't you don't really get races like that. I mean, I suppose the closest thing to it that we have on the calendar still is the Criterium International that's run in uh, April, is it? A- yeah. late, late April, and uh, you know that's three stages over two days, kind of a you know similar enough format. It's got a time trial, a flat stage, and a hilly stage, and yeah, you know it, it, it's a good test. It's very interesting. You know, it's interesting. It's not just another five day stage race or you know another three day stage race. It's it's. It's got a little bit of intrigue about it that the others don't have, and yeah, you know, there's no harm in in, in race organisers thinking outside the box and doing doing that, you know. And uh, I, I guess I brought it up as well because uh, it's um, you know I, we touched upon it last week when we were talking about all the doping problems in the sport, but there's much more than just doping is a problem right now, and and you know there's a lot of races that are struggling financially, especially in Spain because of the you know the 
the big or as they say in Ireland the the, the recession that's hit mm-hmm. uh, hit Europe or you know the global recession and and uh, but Spain has suffered particularly badly and you know I I I think I'm writing saying that the tour of the Basque Country and the Volta Catalonia almost got cancelled either this year or last year only to be saved by the last minute I think it might have been actually government money that saved them maybe I'm wrong on that but yeah completely yeah uh, you know it's a real shame and Ireland has suffered as well you know the tour of Ireland is gone and uh, you know that's that's a real shame you know because I mean the Nissan Classic was such a massive event for Ireland not just for cycling um, when when Kelly and Roach were around, and uh, you know the tour of Ireland, it came back I think in two thousand and seven, and it was gone by two thousand and nine, and it and it's just it's a real shame. And it's something I I, I was I was going to ask you, um, like uh, I I actually I had this conversation with Ned Bolting before about um, oh, God, you're name dropping. Uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, I, I happened to have dinner with Paul Kimmage last week, and uh, they were talking about I was chatting with Ned Bolting. Uh, you know yourself, <laughs> <laughs> but but but. Uh, he he um I, I brought it up at the time I was talking to him um the Olympics uh was in the news because they were they'd announced that they were going to charge to stand on Box Hill in the Olympic road race and mm-hmm. and this this was in the news and I said that you know races like the Tour of Ireland you know if they were if they came up with the idea to charge a fiver or whatever how much they were going to charge to stand on St Patrick's Hill for the final stage of the Tour of Ireland you know. I personally, I wouldn't have a problem paying that if it meant that I was contributing to to a race and that my contribution and the contribution of everybody else meant that the the race would have a better chance of 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 coming around again the next year then i then I would do that and i I'm not sure how popular that opinion is, but i, I you know i don't I wouldn't apply the same logic to the Olympics because that that race is going to happen no matter what. And so is the Tour de France. I, I, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the thought of charging to for people to stand on the top of Alpe d'Huez is kind of absurd because you know people are going to do that anyway. But to, for smaller races that have suffered and 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 that are in danger of of collapsing, it, it, it maybe it seems counterintuitive to start charging people money for this. But I, I personally, as as a fan, I, I would fork out to to, to see this. You know, it doesn't have to be a lot of money, and and I, I, I kind of I gave Ned the example of cyclocross, mm-hmm. and that these these guys, um, sorry, in in cyclocross, you know, you get you get about thirty thousand people turning up to these things, and I, I I'm not sure how much they charge in. I think it's probably in the region of ten euro or so, and you know, they 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 get to see. Um, a number of races, first of all, they get to see a junior race, an under-23 race, a women's race, and a senior race, all about an hour long or slightly less. And, mm-hmm. you know, they make a day of it. And, you know, people can't get enough of it. These races sell out. And, you know, if if races, if race organizers got together and, and you know, did organize a junior race and a women's race and a, and a men's race and put it on a circuit, a finishing circuit, so that people got value for their money, they'd see cyclists go past between the... the the, the multiple races uh, on the multiple laps, you might see 10 or 12 or 15 times the, the peloton going past you. You know, is that worth a fiver? I think it is. And Completely. I, would you would you agree with with that sentiment, or, or, or you know, am I am I talking what? <laughs> talking through your hoop yeah, as you yeah. said delightfully put on Twitter? <laughs> uh, no, I, I actually do agree because my initial reaction was, oh no, you can't pay for it. You know, it's in the public road. But one way or another, you know, we've seen it with D.S. Steph and his uh, fan-supported women's team. 
Uh, we've seen it with, there was a Dutch attempt to essentially do a Kickstarter to, to support the team that was Rabobank. And as fans, we have to be prepared to accept innovation. Uh, St Paddy's Hill, actually, is a perfect example. Um, or, you know, Mont above, or however the hell you pronounce it, above <laughs> Barcelona. You know, we've seen that, and it's incredibly skinny, but loads of great places to watch. So anywhere where you could have a wee bit, I'd pay to be on a bit of the Cowberg, for example, and yeah. the Amstel Gold. Um, and if they put in extra facilities, you know, maybe uh, VIP bars or, you know, really high-quality big-screen TVs so that as fans, while you're waiting for the races to pass, you can keep bang up to date on it. And it's there's added value to the proposition. Yeah, I'd certainly say pay a fiver, and if it sees... Pay Vasco, which you were talking about, nearly went under, and there was in fact a fan-based initiative started. Uh, Colin Flockton, a, a photographer chum of ours who, who lives in the Basque Country, kept me up to date with that. If that's the difference between these classic races staying and going, it's a no-brainer for me. You know, as fans, we we pay for the sport anyway because what the teams are doing is selling our attention to the sponsors. So. You know, let's pay for it with a fiver. It doesn't have to be much money if you've got ten thousand people on the side of a hill, and suddenly, you know, you've you've got enough money for the prize money to attract top riders, to put some some kind of consistency behind the race. You know, so they've got some money in the bank so they can plan for the following year. And we'll see these. They're not the monuments of the sport, but they're part of you know the the rich history of our sport, and we're losing them. And yeah. that's that's just wrong. Yeah, and and take for example the the structure of a race like the the Spanish race, the Escalada Amanjui. As, <laughs> I'm spitting all over my screen here, John. But uh, you know, if you take the, the format of that race, and and say if you organise the Tour of Ireland, and even if it's only three stages or three days, and on the final day you you did something similar, you had a criterium race around Cork City and then in the afternoon you made them time trial with the finish at the top of Patrick's Hill you, you know that would really give people their money's worth and you know I know I know you said uh, um, you mentioned the kind of charging people to, to stand on open roads and, and maybe, I don't know maybe the ethical problem that that brings but like I know in cyclocross they're just kind of in the middle of a field or a forest and you know that, that's fine but I, there is precedent for this as well like I know in the in the post-tour criteriums they do around Belgium and Holland and France they charge into those and, and uh, you know that, that pays for massive amounts of prize money and essentially well maybe not so much anymore but certainly back in the day paid for a large large chunk of a lot of riders salaries so uh you know, th- th- this isn't a, a completely harebrained idea, I, I don't think. Uh, I don't know. think it's harebrained at all. I mean, because if you look at the cyclocross model, you, c- you can even have, if you had, say, a criterium, tent a big chunk of it off and put some beer, you know, put some bars in. Yeah. And have the riders ride through the tent in the way that they do in the big <laughs> cyclocross. I, I, I mean, I would pay to do that. What, you know, watch professional cycling and drink beer at the same time. Yeah. It'd be like going to a 60 outside with less smoke. It'd be fantastic. <laughs> I think you're onto something here, mate. We should form a company and propose this to, to somebody. Yeah, get the trademarks in. Right, absolutely. Anyway, that's us. You're back. I'm glad you survived your uh, your terrible man flu. And I'm purposely keeping this short because you've been very brave, but uh, you actually did sound a bit ropey before we started recording. I was touch so, and go. I was touch and go, definitely. Well, <laughs> then, then you showed me I was completely wrong by waffling on for about three hours about Johan Museo. <laughs> but uh, we will be back. Man flu, uh, acts of God, uh, UCI implosion, whatever, notwithstanding. We'll be back next week. And thanks for listening to This Week in Cycling History. Music.